did this? Your eyes dart around the room, trying to discover the source of the problem. Maybe it's a broken window, or a major spill, or muddy footprints, or a dent in the car. You see the damage that has been done. And now you want to know who is responsible for this mess. One author I read calls out the scene in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf finally awakens Theoden from his debilitating trance. And feeling himself again for the first time in ages, you see as he looks frantically around the room at each face as if to discover how this was done to him. The damage was done, and he wants to know who's to blame. In Theoden's case, it was Wormtongue, and in Micah's case, it was Israel's wealthy land barons. These men, by hook or by crook, were buying and taking property away from the lower and middle class peoples, trying to accumulate more and more wealth and power and control for themselves. Now, every family in Israel originally received property by an allotment. And that property was their economic security. It was their economic independence. But the land barons didn't care. They wanted it all for themselves. Now, to this point, God's accusations against Israel have been pretty general. Broken covenant, idolatry. But now God, through Micah, gets very specific. Woe to those who divide wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, They perform it. One way of looking at this situation is to say that their great wealth is the problem. After all, money is the root of all evil. And blessed are the poor. So here, woe to those who have fields and houses and a large inheritance. Except that's not what any of those verses say. Scripture says blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And scripture says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And here, woe to those, not who have, but woe to those who devise wickedness, who work evil, who covet, and who oppress. The verbs of verses 1 and 2 indicate the real problem, and it's not the possession of wealth. Covetousness, verse 2, they covet This is the center of God's accusation. I love this definition I read of to covet. It's to be gripped with desire for what you do not have, especially when someone else has it. Our willingness to covet is the centerpiece of the modern economy. It keeps the advertising industry in business. Our want for more and more, for newer and better, is insatiable. And so it was for these land barons. And from that covetousness, many other sins followed. One, we see, is a lack of contentment. And that's a given. For one cannot covet and be content at the same time. Sadly, this is like a built-in punishment for coveting that happens in real time. Contentment is a wonderful experience. Contentment makes life joyful and peaceful. And on the contrary, when you covet, when you constantly long for more, you can't even enjoy the things you already have. 
How much joy were these greedy barons getting out of their wealth? Little. That's for sure, because you can see that they're slaves to the desire for more. That's what fills their thoughts and their minds. And it's this way for many. Many, through coveting and discontent, miss out on the chance to enjoy what's right in front of them. Because their energies and all their attention is fixated on what they don't have. Contentment brings joy. Discontent simply cannot. The greedy land barons devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. As God's covenant people, with or without significant financial means, they were called to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they were called to love their neighbors as they love themselves. Thoughts and ideas and plans about how to do these things should fill their time. But instead, they use their time to devise wicked schemes based solely on how to get more. They lay awake at night developing plans to separate people from their property. Their wealth did not come through fair business dealings or hard work, but through deception through manipulation and scheming. Well, they were working hard, working hard, racking their brains to come up with new ways to defraud their neighbors. The time before sleep should not be used for this. The time before sleep should be used for thoughts of gratitude, for prayers of petition for ourselves and the needs of others, for reflection on the ways we can walk more closely with God. Remembrance on the ways that God showed his faithfulness that very day and blessed us. Consumed with the lust for greater wealth, they did none of that. After all, morning would be here soon, and there's a lot to do. Discontent and covetousness, sins of the heart, quickly move outward. God's accusation is not just that they came up with these plans, but that they carried them out. And this happens because covetousness convinces us that we must get what we don't have by any means necessary. We've just got to have it. Discontent tells you that you simply cannot be satisfied by anything other than what you desire. You may as well do what it takes to go get it because that's the only way you'll get to be happy. Children, this is the lie that God is protecting us from when he tells us thou shalt not covet. Only God will ever make our hearts satisfied. Stuff can be great. You know, I love stuff. It's a tremendous blessing. But if we are trying to satisfy our hearts with stuff, all we will ever want is more and more and more. And then when we can't get more through honest ways, our covetous hearts will convince us to do whatever it takes. And the whole time, we miss out on the joy and the satisfaction we could have if we replaced covetousness for what we don't have with gratitude for what we do. These greedy men just want more. And having schemed throughout the night, they get up at dawn to execute their plans. 
And because they have power through their position in the community and the wealth they already have, they can get what they want. They can force the issue. Historians tell us that the poor landowners were bullied and cheated and oppressed until at last they were willing to turn over their land for a song. A common tactic was to get landowners to take out loans from them and then they would foreclose on those loans at the slightest technicality. There's great irony in this text because it talks about these activities happening at dawn when the sun rises. And the dawn of morning is supposed to be when justice shines brightly in Israel. Dawn is when the courts meet and are in session and administer justice. But instead of the rising sun shining a light on the truth and justice of God for his people, it's shown on wicked and evil scheming of men the community should have been able to trust. It is an especially shameful thing to betray the privileges you've been given. Whoever has been given much will be responsible for much. Much more will be expected from the one who has been given more. They were given so much more. And all they wanted was even more. The rest of the passage is the sentence and the conclusion. It focuses on the punishment coming through God's judgment for these sins. And it's reasonable for us to wonder sometimes if there's any evangelistic or devotional value in Old Testament passages like these. How can a text like this be helpful to teach me about God or to be useful in conversations with others about God? They're useful because texts like these teach us about God. I see at least five valuable truths about him in this passage. First, God is paying attention. These greedy barons schemed in the privacy of their bedrooms late at night. They thought no one could see or hear what they were doing. They thought no one could see into their minds and their hearts as they devised wicked plans. But look at verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord. God never sleeps. No one can hide from him. No thought is hidden from his view. God gives many gifts, many by common grace, even to unbelievers. But he's always watching and his gifts are provisional. He's watching to see how these gifts are received and used. And so we should not worry when we see the wicked prosper. We should be confident that in God's time, they will either cease to be wicked or they will cease to prosper. Instead of us worrying, spending our time anxious about the temporary injustice of their situation and that they're not getting what they deserve right now, we should instead focus our time and energy on doing justice to our own situation. We need to be great stewards of God's gifts, financial, relational, and otherwise. We need to be so busy cultivating grateful hearts that we just haven't the time for covetousness or for lamenting over what others have. Now, the best reason to do this is because it honors God and it honors the reasons that he blesses us with gifts. But the other reason to do this is we want to keep the gifts. 
If we neglect God's gifts, we risk them being taken from us in judgment. One of my commentaries listed a whole bunch of examples of this, big and small examples, but it was two of the big examples that stood out to me as particularly tragic on reflection. The Jewish people today and their allies who insist that they have a right to Palestine as the land that God gave them, they've forgotten what really happened. They broke covenant with God. They forfeited the land of promise. And it was God, not the Palestinians, who took it away from them in judgment. And the church, another example is the church in Turkey. When I was in college, I used to chuckle every time a fellow student would ask the professor about a Bible time city. And they always wanted to know, where on the modern map can you find this city? They want to know where Thessalonica or Caesarea or Philippi is. And the answer was the same. It was always, always the same. Modern day Turkey. The answer is always modern day Turkey. But isn't that tragic? Turkey was the part of the globe where the church of Jesus Christ spread like wildfire. It thrived in the ancient world as a beacon. And then today, Christianity is entirely gone from Turkey. Beautiful ancient churches are museums or government buildings or worse, mosques. And Christ warned that it would be this way. He told them What would happen if they abandoned the love they first had for Christ and his church, the lampstands, would be removed? The more lukewarm they became, the more likely it would be that what they were given was taken away. And God pays attention. So one commentator concludes, nations, churches, and families that squander their spiritual inheritance through worldliness and sin should expect that their gracious allotment will be taken away. God pays attention. Second, God is personally offended by sin. He says, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. In every sin, God is always the most offended party. Now, people can do great evil against us. They can cause all kinds of real hurt and pain. This is not to minimize that. But it is objectively true that whatever they're doing to us is never worse than what they're doing to God. He made them in his image. He gave them life. He gave them good gifts. He provided redemption through his son despite their rebellion against him. To God, sin is always personal. He is the offended party. And so he's personally involved in his judgments. He observes and remembers and judges each individual sin. Every evil done in this world against you or another was also done against God, and that sin will be paid for. By Christ or by the sinner, none will be overlooked. We should see and remember sin and its effects the way God does. That's part of the point of verse 4. The people taking up this taunt song against the robber barons is that the people would remember the cause and effect, that this is the consequence of the sin that was done. God isn't just 
generally opposed to sin. He remembers the details because he took them very personally. Third, God is actively engaged in righting wrongs. In this text, Micah leans into some parallels between the activities of the greedy land barons and God to emphasize this point. They are devising and working on their plans. So also, Micah says, the Lord is devising disaster. He's working on his plans just as diligently. You see, when these people get what's coming, it will not be karma that made it happen. It will be an actively engaged God who rights wrongs. He doesn't just see sin, he responds to it. There's a play on words here as well, because in Hebrew, the same word can be translated evil in some contexts and disaster in another's. So Micah uses that word both ways. He says once that the greedy barons plotted evil against their neighbors. And once he says that God plotted disaster, the same word, right back against them. There is great evil in this world. You see it. You experience it. You are from time to time, victimized by it. And it's easy to get discouraged and think, this is how it is. God's not going to do anything about it. It's just how it is. But that's not true. It may not be in the timing that you'd prefer because it's in the right timing, God's timing. But God writes every wrong. Another pastor says, not only may you hope for justice eventually to set things right, you may look for God himself to intervene on your behalf. The wrongs you've suffered, the harms done against you, the evils that have brought you hurt and pain, you look not only to a future of justice in the abstract, but of God writing those wrongs. You may not see it happen. You may be a witness to it or you may not. But it will happen. God rights wrongs. This is because fourth, God is just. He judges rightly. His judgments perfectly fit the wrong that was done. These wicked men were accustomed to using their position and their wealth to get them out of any kind of consequence to their evil. They did not fear any punishment because they could always get around it. But what does God say? From which you cannot remove your necks. They won't escape this one. They won't get around it. No scheming will get them off the hook here. It says that they walked before God and others with excessive pride, but under God's judgment, they shall not walk haughtily. They will be brought low. And even the details of the punishment itself are just. They are equal. They go right at the heart of the sin. They say, he changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our field. They're talking about the land. This land that they've taken through wicked and unjust means, this will be taken from them. And even their portion The part they started with, what was actually theirs from the allotment, the part given to them as part of God's promise, that will be taken away too. 
Now, logistically, if this situation worked out the way many similar ones did at this time in history, we don't know for sure, but it's reasonable speculation. God uses an invading and conquering army to give the land that was stolen from the poor back to the poor. And by the way, poor in this context is middle class. It's homeowners who had their homes taken away from them. Upon being conquered, the rich, the powerful, the elites, they were killed or they were carried off into exile. But they didn't bother to take the poor back with them. And so they were left behind. And this means by default, the land was reallocated to whoever was there, whoever showed up at the allotment. And since the greedy land barons were gone, they and their posterity would get nothing. God's justice includes not only punishment for the wicked, but restitution and restoration for the downtrodden. Everything that has been taken from you in this life by unjust and wicked means, the Lord will pay you back. This is because, fifth and finally, God is redemptive. Yes, judgment is certain. It will come. But it will come to those who ignored his warnings and who reject his means of escape. Redemption is always available to those who seek it. Verse 5, Micah's pronouncement of judgment on the wicked, do you see that even that contains this little seed of hope? He says, therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now, as I said, the greedy land barons won't be around when the land is reallocated to God's people. Like the ten tribes of Israel to the north, they will be wiped from the pages of history as God's final judgment against their lack of love for God and neighbor. But notice what this event implies. There will be another allocation of the land. There will be a remnant of God's people who continue in the rest. And the land, there is hope for the faithful. God promises his repentant people a future, even in the midst of his judgment. Micah will highlight more details about this later in the book, but on this side of the cross, we know what those details are. This is clearly coming through Jesus. One teacher says Jesus gathers the seed of Abraham, all who believe in him, into the rest that only he can provide. Jesus sovereignly apportions us land and rest in his church. And it's because of this certain hope and this future that we have to go back to the beginning of this text and realize that we are all rich. We're all rich, perhaps not rich in material wealth, but except with respect to the obligations that wealth places on us, material wealth is neither here nor there. What matters is that we are, as Jesus says it, Rich toward God. Have you received the matchless grace of God in Christ? Is this hope and future yours? Then you are rich in him. How rich? Very. And so the question then for us is not, are we rich? It's, will we be rich toward God? When your head hits the pillow, will you think about what you don't have? Will you plot and scheme about how to get more? 
Will you simmer in discontent and unhappiness because of what your life does and does not have or has and has not turned out to be? Or will you instead, rich in him, also be rich toward him? Prayers of gratitude. Making plans to honor God by walking with Christ and loving our neighbors. Plans to devote our time and our energy to the advancement of his kingdom. When was the last time we made plans to love our neighbor? Concrete, specific plans. Do some scheming while you're lying in your bed about how tomorrow you will love your neighbor. And yes, if we have wealth, we should think carefully and seriously about how to use that for the sake of the gospel. But the truth is we are all rich in him. How rich are we? In God? Infinitely so. So believer, how will you today, tomorrow, and the next day plan to be rich toward him? May God help us in this task.